0: How do you get a contemporary audience interested in opera? One possibility is to include the use of virtual reality technology to make it accessible or perhaps intriguing to a younger contemporary audience. I'm joined on the line by director Bruce Beresford, who you may know best as a filmmaker, but Bruce has a long history and a long love of opera. He's directing Macbeth for Melbourne Opera, one performance of which will be broadcast live in virtual reality, Bruce, a very good morning to you. Morning. Before we begin talking about the, the use of VR technology in this production, let's talk about you and opera. You've long loved the art form. And I, is it true that the very first opera you went along to was not because you were interested in the opera, but you were interested in somebody who might be there?
1: Yes, <laughs> I went to the opera with a school friend. I didn't know anything about opera, and he told me he had a very pretty cousin. He told me she'd be going. So I said, oh, okay, I'll come. (laughs) But then the very pretty cousin was there, but I adored the opera. I thought, oh, my God, this is absolutely fabulous. The music, the singing, the spectacle, it's all so exciting. And then I became fanatical.
0: Well, and that fanaticism for opera has included working around the world. You've directed for Portland Opera, Washington Opera, Los Angeles Opera and locally here uh, in Australia for the State Opera of South Australia, Opera Australia and this production of Verdi's Macbeth for Melbourne Opera. Now, Macbeth in itself is a, a bloody, gory, thrilling story. I imagine once you add the power of operatic music to the mix that it becomes a real spectacle.
1: Oh, it does. It's it's very exciting. I mean, it's very, um, it very much, very closely follows the um, storyline of the play. But of course, the music adds a tremendously dramatic dimension to it. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's got some of the best music Bertie ever wrote. It's very tuneful. Uh, it's very beautiful. Even the tragic arias are very beautiful. And also it's exciting, there's, you know, there's fights, murders.
0: <laughs> it's thrilling. With all that going on then, why the need to include virtual reality in the mix? Is that just a gimmick to intrigue audiences? Is it a distraction well, from what will be happening well, on stage? It's,
1: well, of course, when you see it in virtual reality, you do see it in 3D. So you get the feeling, I mean, it gives it a tremendous um, presence, a tremendous realism. Because you've got this thing on your head. I've only seen a demonstration of it once, but it's it's quite extraordinary. I mean you actually feel you're there watching these things happen. Certainly it's, then because it's three dimensional. it's it's uncanny.
0: The fact that that sense of feeling like being there is obviously going to be an attraction for audiences who are perhaps nervous still about going out uh, because of COVID or who physically uh, for reasons of geography or or, uh, mobility can't travel to the theatre. So the VR experience will make it feel like they're there.
1: That's true. I mean, it should... Yes. I mean, I think it will become widespread, the virtual reality. I mean, you've got to sit there with this attachment, but it's not very complicated. You just put it on i mean we had a demonstration they just gave us half a dozen and put them on our heads and there you are you watch it it's it's quite quite fantastic
0: now, in terms of directing opera, how does that differ to directing film? I mean, you've made more than thirty feature films in your career, for example. So you're clearly adept uh, and f- very familiar with that art form, uh, and people would obviously know films like *Braker Morant* uh, and *The Club* from uh, earlier in your, your your kind of work, or *Driving Miss Daisy* and other later films, but. In terms of directing a stage production as opposed to directing a film, talk to us about how that differs.
1: Well, as a director, you have to be conscious that the audience is in a fixed position and they're essentially watching a wide shot. I mean, in a film, you have all the little gadgets you cut closer to the actors, you move the camera, uh, you have short scenes and it, it bounces around. But in operas and plays... That's rarely the case. It has to be sustained over a long period with the one setting. So I have to pay very special attention to the well the characterisations, the acting, the lighting, the set. Of course the thing that opera's got and live theatre's got is the actual presence of the actors. I mean they're really there. And that is a tremendous factor that that gives you that gives it an edge that film doesn't have because there's only photographs of the actors. When they're really there, I think it gives you a big thrill.
0: And certainly then as the director, it means you're able to literally direct the audience's eye to where you want them to focus on a stage by having an actor step forward at a particular moment, for example. The risk there being that... you can have a, another actor who can That's it. accidentally or key... deliberately upstage somebody by moving at the wrong time.
1: Oh yes, well I, you don't. It's not good if they do that. I mean, <clears throat> one of the key things about directing uh, stage or opera is choreographing the movements. So you say, look, you move here, you move there, you go there, you sit, you stand, you go there and there. I mean, the good directors often uh, do these things extremely well. The choreography is very interesting and very. Um, greatly expresses the content of the play or the opera. You have badly directed plays and operas in which the actors just stand there and talk. Um, I mean, you don't see that that much these days, but it used to
0: be pretty standard. In terms of the VR element, how will that be directed? Will you be sitting off stage, for example, saying, cut here, cut there? Because uh, I understand there will be a number no, of different I... opportunities for, for viewing the work, a front row seat, for example, in well, uh, the that's orchestra. It. I think,
1: yes, well, the people viewing it can make changes. Uh, there are, I believe they put about nine cameras around the stage. They're very small. Uh, evidently, the actors don't even notice them. But they put them around, and as you're watching it, you can take any viewpoint you want. It's another way of looking at these things. I mean, I've not seen an entire opera with this method, but I can imagine it's fascinating. Uh, I've only seen a demonstration. It's all very new.
0: Will you be sitting with a VR headset on at home when the final performance is streamed via VR, or would you find that uh, the experience of sitting Uh, there with a headset on for...
1: No, no, I'll certainly look at it with a VR thing. I'm, you know, very keen to do it. I mean, it's, I think it's something that's going to catch on in a big way.
0: Well, certainly in an interview... It's bound with, to. You mentioned in an interview with The Age that you've got some grandchildren who simply couldn't care less about opera and that your attempts to influence them failed dismally. Do you think VR will appeal <laughs> to them and appeal to a younger audience? Well,
1: yes, it probably will, because they're all technically very savvy and they love all the, the kids love all these... Um, uh, in any technical developments, they're very quick to catch on to. And this is one of the most radical and exciting ones, I think, to see something in 3D. It's, um, uh, I mean, especially a dramatic thing like that or, or, or even a, a travelogue. I mean, I use, I've seen a travelogue where you're going through Venice and you'd actually swear you're in Venice. You'd be sure you'd be certain you're there.
0: In terms of the production it's, itself... It's so real. In, Bruce, in terms of the production itself of... Uh, because, obviously, the, for opera aficionados, they probably won't care so much about the VR aspect. They'll be intrigued to know what you're doing with the work itself. You're setting it, I understand, in its original... Uh, ..the originally intended setting of 11th century Scotland as opposed to doing a more modern production.
1: Yes, I think... Uh, well, the more modern productions have become something of a cliché... so many opera productions have been reset in Nazi Germany that I'm sick to death of them. Um, You just get so many, uh, so many updated ones. I think it's time for a bit of a move back to the original settings, which nobody's seen for years and years. In fact, I haven't been able to meet anyone who's seen a production of Macbeth in the setting it's meant to be. So So this, I think setting it in... uh, Scotland, in the eleventh century too, plays up the sort of you know the basic conflicts in it there It's in a big stone
0: castle it's um very, you know, it's very raw and earthy. So in some ways, setting it in that originally intended setting uh, becomes a novelty in and of itself, in the same way that the VR element is. It's you are doing something fresh with the production <laughs> that has not been seen.
1: No, that's true. Um, the, the productions of it either tend to be Nazi Germany, and I've seen others that set it vaguely in the sort of middle ages, like the, uh, in the Renaissance. They set it in the 16th and 17th century, which No. Well, it kind of works. I mean, the drama will work almost anywhere. But I think where we're setting it is um, an exciting setting,
0: if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Bruce Beresford about Melbourne Opera's upcoming production of Verdi's Macbeth. It's on uh, from on the 18th, the 20th, the 23rd, and the 26th of May at Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne. And you can find out more details at melbourneopera.com. Bruce, as a, a final question for you, uh, given that you've worked with companies uh, around the world and around Australia as well, what's it like working with Melbourne Opera? They're a unique company in that uh, up until very recently they had no state or federal funding at all they rely on philanthropy and box office so they run a lean production but they certainly have a, an excellent reputation what's it like from your end
1: they do it well the car well i think it's a really great company i mean they're tremendously enthusiastic but in itself that's not that's not enough it does have i mean we have a cast in this Opera of Macbeth, which is absolutely spectacular. I mean, there's like five or six leading roles. They're, every singer is superbly gifted. I mean, the, the, the sound, the music, the, the, uh, the arias are so stunning. And also a wonderful chorus. There's a huge chorus in Macbeth, 50 people. I mean, it's, um, it's a great sound. And the, the company is absolutely first class. And, you know, I've directed, you know, Los Angeles Opera and some of the biggest companies in the world. This company is absolutely first class.
0: For more details about Melbourne Opera's production of Verdi's Macbeth, directed by Bruce Beresford, jump online, www.melbourneopera.com. The season is kicking off on the 18th of May and concludes on the 26th of May, and the final performance of Macbeth on the 26th will be broadcast live via virtual reality. Uh, You will need, of course, a virtual reality headset to experience that version of the production, but it certainly sounds intriguing. Bruce Beresford, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Triple R. My next guest has joined me on the line. The force of nature, who is cabaret <laughs> superstar, meow meow. It's a pleasure to have you back on the program.
2: I am thrilled to be on it, in it, and around it. Yes. <laughs> you're all, coming. All to, of the notions.
0: You're coming to Melbourne <laughs> to do uh, a performance with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Now, the idea of symphonic music and cabaret kind of one is grand and large the other kind of intimate and sultry how do you weld the two together i'm i'm imagining rosie the riveter style kind of overalls um, and sparks and and flame <laughs> and fury <laughs>
2: there's definitely flat flame fury and uh and compassion i'd have to say there. but no you know i always play to a stadium richard regardless of the size of the venue so it feels like the concert hall is actually my natural habitat you know really even if i'm in a tiny tent i'm still playing to a massive you know a massive audience in my mind and i think that's the that's the key of you know i have a broad concept of cabaret it's all about the the intimacy that you can create within the music and with that audience and i think that's totally possible with a, within a concert hall that's actually the beauty of the thing is bringing everyone in close together and I think you know certainly the way we're all like little little bambies with wobbly legs out in the woods at the minute I think that's a very special task as it were, I can't wait to get on stage there and um, have that symphony behind me and it, in front of me and around me.
0: <laughs> it certainly does feel like audiences are so hungry uh, at the moment for for that live experience, particularly I think in Melbourne after so long in lockdown last year that people are definitely hungry for experience. Does that mean they might almost? I don't. Know, I'm not expecting people to rush the stage, for example. But I
2: hope they do. I think it would be rude not to. But I think it's um. It's feels to me like a more delicate situation actually. I think um, I've done this concert a, a few times I've done an out-of-town tryout with the London Philharmonic and um, uh, you know we've done it I've done it at Sydney Opera House and It's all been pre-pandemic, this this orchestrated chaos, as I I call it, has been emotional at the best of times, because I've got songs in there written by Meg Washington and Ian Grandage and Thomas Lauderdale from Pink Martini, so there's a lot of sort of music from people who are very dear to me that I've co-written, and I always feel very emotional anyway, I think with that sort of when you've got the full force of an orchestra with you, it's kind of fantastic. But I feel that after this sort of sensory deprivation that we've all had, that those those pieces become even more magnificent, and the you know the ritual of energetic transaction that you just can't replicate is it's it's I, so I think it's you know I think people are uh, uh, they're hungry, but I also feel like we're very aware of uh, being grateful in the moment of of connection, and particularly connection through music. So I always love to be mobbed, of course, but I think it, it's quite emotional. I think I I do believe so strongly that you know we open up our hearts with all of. That, and when you 've got a full orchestra just going for it it's really it's kind of like why why we exist to me." <laughs> I'm just yeah, thinking, what on.
0: kind of what responsibility does that place on you as a performer, meow meow? When given that audiences are, as we've said, audiences are perhaps already slightly more emotional and responsive than they would have been a, yeah. a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, given that I've yeah. seen you reduce audiences to tears and then effortlessly make us roar with <laughs> laughter moments later, that knowing that audiences are perhaps more emotionally vulnerable than they have been in the past, yeah. does that? change the way you approach a performance? Does it make you more sensitive and more cautious or, and, and give you a greater sense of responsibility? Or is it just going to be hell for leather? Uh, can everybody strap in? I
2: think it's both, actually. I mean, I don't ever feel unconnected from what's going on. I mean, that's the beauty of um, a changeable program and, and the cabaret form, even if it's with orchestras, that you can chop and change with the events. Now, obviously, it's all orchestrated, so it's more tightly organized than total free form of a smaller band. But there's still a lot of freedom within it. And it's, you know, I've got brilliant musicians, plus Ben Norby conducting, who, um, you know, I've worked with before. So there's a sort of sense of strap in, but it's communal. <laughs> It's definitely a ride. It is joyous, this concert. But I think I'm always sort of seeking for the, the the vulnerability within myself and within an audience. For sure, that's the sort of material that I choose. I think is the preciousness of of uh, life, and that you know that beautiful Patty Griffin song that I can never get away from because I think it says the right thing. Be careful, you know. It's just about um, being careful with each other, and I still find that immensely. You know, profound. I don't know. I def- I always feel a responsibility because I think what a what a joyous thing to be able to get on stage and have all of that music around you is really that's that's just phenomenal. But it's it's very much what I've missed in the you know the hideousness of being locked down of not having that um, the energetic exchange which is so much about the absolute base nature of music bringing bringing people together and and blowing the roof off with laughter and with, you know, I always, I don't take myself too seriously, but it's um, a lot of material I think is profound. By its lineage and profound by its ability to connect with with people across ages, and that's that's special. If you've just tuned in, I'm, I'm speaking I with Miam Miam. a bit serious today, but I, <laughs> I do feel I do feel um, it has been so strange having that. I think music underutilised in Australia, certainly in this time of pandemic and lockdown, and I'm just feeling that we've sort of missed opportunities to connect people virtually with the the power of that. And so it's it's been a a time of um, contemplation and frustration and (laughs) and gratitude. You know, I think joy sounds a bit bit off, but it's true. I do feel like without being able to blow the roof off with a song and having that sense of, um, I don't know, that that otherworldly thing that happens when you're really all in the moment, it's, you know, it just, it's like semi-paralysis. It's like half, it's like limping. Mind you, I probably will be limping because i um, i have to get back into training into my high heels. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sense of...
2: So of... it's a funny show, but I feel like, you know, it's kind of music of the spheres as well. It's beautiful orchestrations and that's like, oh, it's just yummy. It's delicious. So it's sonically lush and certainly visually, of course. Exquisite. Um, I still have my lovely long legs. Listeners don't panic. But yeah, it does feel like a a special, a special, um, a special thing. Working with an orchestra is, you know, it's, it's sublime. All those little single lines that come together in something magical. Oh, I love it. (laughs) I was just
0: thinking that the, the that sense of communion that we have at, at a live experience when everybody is together in a room that to to, to be able to return to that experience that kind of collective uh, kind of joy that we have uh, in the live event for any performer uh, deprived of that it must have been challenging uh, so very much looking forward to seeing you return to the stage but i did I was curious Meow Meow, given that this performance with the mSO Meow, meows pandemonium. Having an entire orchestra behind you uh, is, yeah. as opposed to singing with perhaps a, a, a pianist and a and a cellist and a guitarist. That sheer volume of sound does that present yeah. a risk to you vocally? Are you are you going to are you going to damage no, yourself for the?
2: It's always risky vocally, but I've got, you know, they're brilliant sound people. It's the Arts Centre, it's Hamer Hall, it's you know, the concert hall, it is I just have to control myself. I get overexcited and that's when I blow my voice. So I have to and I never want to pace myself, but I do have to try and think, It's all right, you can let the you can let the amazing sound engineers do that for you, you know. I think I mean, I'm used to, I've I've performed with lots of orchestras around the world and I have, I don't know, it's just a very, you just need good monitors, actually. I need to just not get overexcited and and trust that it's all going out there. But, you know, the last time I did this concert was um, Rufus Wainwright came on and sang the duet that we'd recorded for Pink Martini. And so it was really special. And a couple of days after that, I was off in Germany and, you know, and then we got locked down. And so it's like I've sort of, kept listening to Rufus ever since the last concert and stayed in this sort of thing of almost it being too raw and too painful to um, extend my oral capacities because it's so profound for me music so I'm kind of I'm looking forward sadly Rufus won't be there he'll be there in spirit because we'll probably do that duet anyway but you know I've had the great pleasure of recording that with him over in 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 LA at the you know at Capitol Studios where they have the real echo chambers built under the under the studio and there's sort of lots of resonances that are with you even um as a performer of when you wrote the song or when you recorded it or the madness <laughs> the madness so there's lots of layers and layers and layers and I think I've just got to try not to get too overexcited because it's two in a row, Friday and Saturday.
0: Meow Meow's Pandemonium, uh, as you've just heard, Friday the 21st and Saturday the 22nd of May, 7.30pm at Hayler Hall uh, and booking through mso.com.au. And, Meow Meow, you're also going to be in conversation on Wednesday the 19th.
2: Well, apparently not because now we have a rehearsal. So I thought that was happening as well. Um, Do scold them, no. I'm always in conversation, clearly, Richard. So if anyone wants to, um, you know, have a chat with me, I'm 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 available. Perhaps not right during the show because it'll freak the musicians out. But um, uh, they have cancelled that, I believe, because of scheduling rehearsals. So it's probably good to know we've all rehearsed. So come to the show. It is glorious. It's funny and... Joyous. Yeah, it's just bloody beautiful. I have to say that. It's like a lot of people in Melbourne who've seen, you know, some of the material. Suddenly, when you've got the huge orchestra, it's just another beast. It's really wonderful. Meow
0: yeah, Meow's Pandemonium <laughs> with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, Friday the 21st and Saturday the 22nd of May, 730 pm at Hamer Hall. Tickets and booking <laughs> details at mso.com.au. Meow Meow, as always, it's been a pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R. An independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Kaziah Warner and Rochelle Fong are here to chat about a work called Puna. Now, back in 1997, Australia's most infamous xenophobe, Pauline Hanson, uh, published a book, uh, Pauline Hanson, The Truth, in which she imagined Australia in the year 2050, run by a lesbian cyborg of Indian and Chinese background called Puna. This is Pauline Hanson's worst nightmare. It's been brought to life by Rochelle Fong and Keziah Warner. Welcome to you both. It's lovely to have you in the studio.
3: Hello, thank you for having
0: us. So, Rochelle, let's start with you. Why create a work, Puna, as it's called, kind of inspired by this strange xenophobic nightmare of Pauline Hanson's?
4: Well, it's just such a beautiful piece of creative writing. So it was pretty (laughs) irresistible, to be honest, Um, especially framed as you know, like a PC Australia gone mad kind of thing. As soon as I read it, I just thought, wow, that sounds like a beautiful future and um, I want to live there. So (laughs) the closest thing we can get to time travel is, I guess, creating uh, that reality and inviting our audience members to join us in a more utopic version uh, of, of Pune's world.
0: Now, when you say it's a beautiful piece of writing, what immediately springs to mind to me, of course, is Gina Reinhardt's poetry, which I'm <laughs> sure is kind of on about the same literary level. Uh, Keziah, what's it like adapting a, a, a work like this?
3: Um well, we kind of tried to take the inspiration and then throw that work in the bin and go totally our own way, I think. So, yeah, adaptation by inspiration only. Um, yeah, and and as Rochelle said, kind of um, that their idea of dystopia was totally our idea of utopia. So we were like, this is perfect. Let's make a wonderful... Um, idealised version of 2050 with, yeah, the best possible president we could ever imagine.
0: (laughs) It sounds like you've taken the, I don't know, the Hollywood-style route to adaptation, kind of take the title and then make everything else up. (laughs) That's exactly right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms then of trying to create a work... Uh, and imagine that future. What talk us through the steps of the, the actual creative process of how you kind of got to the point where you are now? Was there lots of I don't know, uh, lots of brainstorming sessions, lots of white pa- paper on the on the wall, kind of and. Just trying to imagine what this utopia slash dystopia might look like.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Lots of lots of brainstorming, lots of white paper on the wall. That's definitely definitely the process we went through. And we kind of because obviously the the source text being written in nineteen ninety seven was kind of that the same thing that George Orwell did with 1984 in that their idea of 50 years away was so wildly different, you know, ro- uh, robots sorry, roaming the earth and that sort of thing. So obviously now that we're here in 2021, we know that it's not really going to be robots roaming the earth. Um, but so we were – because we had that kind of provocation, we had the license to be quite free and what our vision of the future could be rather than thinking – maybe as realistically about okay what what is it going to be like in 30 years time we could go okay great there's robots so what else Australia is a republic Uh, it's part of the pan-Asian union like all these sort of um, kind of fun ideas and things that we could take without having to root things too much in in reality I guess
4: yeah totally and I think we've kind of um, reframed our source text not really as that book. But um, instead we've talked to um, politicians of colour, you know, our director uh, Isabella Vadevalu has brought in a whole wall of lots of current um, leaders like Jacinda Ardern and we've just kind of tried to think about what a really safe, creative, like political party boiler room might look like and that's really the heart of it. It's like, okay, what are their personal relations? How are they supporting each other? How are they... um, being kind? Like what are the values that they're putting out that, you know, we would like to have (laughs) in the world? Yeah, kind of trying to
3: demonstrate a different model of leadership than maybe Mm. the ones that we have today.
0: Mm. Well, given the current models of leadership and indeed the current leaders, I think kind of imagining something uh, better is certainly far preferable. It's already, it's definitely sounding like a kind of uh, a world that I would like to be living in. With all those ideas then informing the work, Rochelle, tell us about the work that you've created. What will audiences experience? When they head along to the Chinese Museum in Cohen Place in the city to, to uh, experience. Puna.
4: Yeah, well, um, as soon as audiences arrive, I mean, the Chinese Museum is a beautiful building, and um, you know, as soon as you go in there, like that, that's kind of rooted in, I guess, Pune's <laughs> yeah, culture as well, and and my my background too partly. Um, so audiences will come in; they'll be uh, assigned a role. So um, essentially, they are all members of the Independent Pune Party, and we've got three levels of engagement that all come with different types of roles, um, and we will. Uh, so the audience get to choose their role and then they'll either get like a small script or sort of some indication of what they might be um, up for. Uh, and then, yeah, as soon as they go upstairs into the um, contemporary art space where um, we've transformed into the boiler room, then they're basically sucked into Puna's team um, and they may be called upon <laughs> throughout the show. So, yeah, we we had a lot of fun, I think, blending our art forms and our disciplines in this, and you know, Kizzy's a playwright, and um, my interest is you know more in like performance art and immersive um, design. So, yeah, it's been a really wonderful process too of combining those things. So, yeah, audiences will have active roles, but they'll also get to sit back and enjoy some beautiful meaty dialogue. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a wild ride. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you
3: get there's lots of um, jobs on offer. So you could be the campaign treasurer, but you could also be the telepathic comms advisor, you could be the cyborg outreach officer, there's lots of uh, lots of different jobs and um, the kind of the, the story of the show follows the four weeks leading up to election day itself and um, throughout the show different crises come in that you as the team have to deal with um, and you can, you know, sometimes you might do well in a crisis and that's great, sometimes you might do not so well um, if overall you d- you get the majority of crises right then she does win the election um, if you get if you get more wrong then she does lose the election so there's two different outcomes of the show as well so it's kind of a different experience every night
0: so you've got a mm-hmm. cast of four and then essentially the audience as the other other cast members in what sounds like uh, a kind of giant freeform role-playing game uh, <laughs> as much as a, as a work of theater the risk there being that uh, the wrong audience member can disrupt quite badly if you get somebody who's drunk and antagonistic for example and and tries to deliberately take things kind of in an unexpected direction or derail proceedings. How do you, and your director and your team, how do you prepare for those kind of risks in a work like this?
3: Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about that. Um, The way that the um, immersion, I mean, Rochelle designed all the immersion and interactive elements and the way that that's been designed has been um, kind of taken into account as many different Um, outcomes as possible so there's a certain amount of outcomes that we're all um, that we're ready for you can probably talk to this slightly more Um, but we do also have you know in terms of keeping it a safe space and keeping it um, you know a good experience for everyone we also have a front of house person in the room every night who is either one of us or is our director Bella um, and you know, if they, if anyone is not being uh, friendly and nice in the workplace, as we would expect in any workplace, then you know we ask them to chuck a sickie and go home for the rest of the day, um, because obviously that's not what we want. But yeah, I mean, there's also lots of um, things that are built in that we could kind of, we're ready for it to go in multiple different directions.
0: So you've kind of almost plotted it like a video game in some ways, the the kind of multiple narrative routes that some will. Lead to the same end point, but via distant destinations, and then presumably several alternative endings as well as we've already heard.
4: Yeah, that's right. And you'll find out if she wins or loses. But then there are a couple of different outcomes in terms of who you might lose to
0: and that sort of thing. So
4: yeah, it's a it's a trip.
0: <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the kind of I guess plotting different possibilities, uh, because. I mean, it's, it strikes me, I'm a, I'm a journalist, uh, I'm a writer, so often when I start writing a, uh, a news story, I know how it's going to end, roughly. Um, fiction writing is much more challenging, uh, and then interactive writing like this must be a step up again because you kind of, you don't know where it's going to end, or rather you do, but you don't know which ending is going to happen on the night, so... It, Sounds like a pretty demanding creative process.
4: I mean, like, (laughs) our skills lie in different areas. You know, I I, uh, find writing dialogue much harder. But, um, yeah, in terms of plotting it out, I mean, um, you know, it's just really doing a tree diagram and kind of reverse engineering it back through. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite fun to do and um, being able to just, like, also offer a bit of leeway for discussion. Like, in some of the crises you just need to pick A or B and actually it's quite simple. It's, you know, there are two outcomes, Um, but leading up to that, how the actors are facilitating the discussion um, is actually a big part of the um, immersion as well so it's kind of like yeah a little like group bonding experience within each of those little tree sections and that's where kind of the real magic happens and where we want the audience to leave feeling like they did it together and they kind of yeah made some new friends as well <laughs> yeah yeah and I think the
3: um in terms of that like sort of loss of
4: control I, I
3: that was the biggest challenge for me because I'm uh, you know a playwright by trade so I'm used to that fourth wall kind of being down so I think that was the biggest change um and we just tried to make sure really that well firstly I had to relax <laughs> um but also just trying to make sure that whatever outcome happened that we were really happy with it that like you know that any ending was was good and actually kind in the end we I went sort of too far in the other direction and we all liked the concession speech a lot more than we liked the victory <laughs> speech and we're like oh no we have got to make the victory speech better I've gone too far towards the bad ending um but yeah it is it is like Um, surrendering that control and and welcoming the audience in as a a part of that creative process.
0: If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Rochelle Fong and Kaziah Warner, uh, who are the co-creators of Puna, uh, a new work that is on at the Chinese Museum, 22 Cohen Place in Melbourne, and on now until the 23rd of May now i guess a, a question for both of you given the political focus of this story i mean we're kind of uh, set uh, in an election in 2050 in which our uh, our lesbian cyborg uh, of mixed race may or may not become kind of our glorious leader Any risks, any concerns that people are a little bit sick of politics at the moment, especially given the the toxic nature of federal politics in Australia? Is the politics going to scare people off or do you think the people who are hungry for this kind of work will come no matter what?
4: I think that the poster (laughs) really says a lot about the, like, the flavour and the mood of the work. So, you know, it's lilac, it's coral, it's pink, it's yellow. I I am quite tired of petrol politics, but, um, you know, and that's why I think um, Kezia and I collaborated to begin with because I've really loved how she's able to take really, high-concept things and make them very personal and, like, just kind of make it a fun Friday night with the team. So, you know, I think, um, yeah, like, people are coming because – they want to be Puna, they want to be like a, a, a very stylish cyborg who's in control, who you know, wears the pants in the room, so to speak. And, um, and that's the draw card, really. And that, that I guess we've made it for ourselves first and foremost. And um, I think that crosses quite a lot of genres and isn't really kind of pigeonholed into being um, just like a political drama per se.
3: Yeah, and I think going back to that idea of kind of remodelling leadership, I think um, we've talked a lot about trying to kind of remodel politics as well, I like kind of offer this show as a bit of a vision of how things could be if our leaders were um, kind and generous and genuinely interested in serving the public.
0: <laughs> and Keezy, and apologies, I've been mispronouncing your name oh, earlier in right. the interview, Um in terms of remodelling the work, this was originally going to be staged at uh, Next Wave Festival uh, uh, and then, of course, this little pandemic thing happened and what? everything got <laughs> upended. Uh, have you, has Having that extra then, I guess, effectively extra um, development time, uh, how has that benefited the production how, how and how has it changed it from what would have been originally staged at Next Wave Festival last year?
3: Yeah, it's benefited... Massively, I think having um, even just having a year for something to percolate in your mind makes it so different. Um, but I think the biggest change is how much deeper embedded now the interaction is in the work. We had um, – if it had gone on in 2020, it would have been interactive, but we didn't have those kind of defined job titles for each of the audience members. I think we've been able to, like um, – control the sort of the journey for each audience member through the work in a um, much better kind of more truly interactive way rather than just having moments that were kind of open to discussion. We've been able to like individually involve every single audience member. Um,
4: Yeah I think that is probably the biggest change. Yeah definitely and I think it um, really solidified that We believe in the work and we believe in finding humour and and lightness and sort of different moments within hate, (laughs) within hate speech and exploring that a little bit more um, in a more nuanced way as well. Mm, And having a year where we've
3: been having, you know, everyone's been having to turn to their nation's leaders for for guidance, you know, and kind of seeing how that's been done well or been done badly um, has been really informative for the work as well.
0: Puna takes the xenophobic, racist, paranoid fear of Pauline Hanson and through theatrical alchemy, turns it into immersive interactive gold. Uh, It's on at the... So Puna at the Chinese Museum, 22 Cohen Place in Melbourne, on until the 23rd of May. Uh, You can book through Eventbrite. Uh, so I think the easy rather than me giving the full URL which could be slightly complicated just go to eventbrite.com.au and just search for Puna P-O-O-N-A and you can book tickets to see Puna at the Chinese Museum it's created uh, co-created by Rochelle Fong and Kezia Warner it's been a pleasure having you both in the studio to chat about the work and chookers for the rest of the season